And also in that epilogue, he says, in coming to understand anything, we must reject the facts as they are for us in favor of the facts as they are. The facts are more complex than, than what I understand. And even if I have a, a, a sure word, I understand truth. I hold that understanding with confidence. I know it's true, but also with the humility of knowing that I can still go deeper with that truth. Hello, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am very um, excited to have with us Professor Jerry Root um, with us today. Um, Jerry Root, he's a graduate of uh, Whittier College and Talbot Graduate School of Theology at Biola University. Um, he received his PhD at Open University, um, and he is a C.S. Lewis expert. Um, and uh, he, he's written C.S. Lewis and the Problem of Evil, as well as numerous other books. I mean, you can look it up on Amazon, um, too. And this is kind of um, unusual and exciting. He has two that have actually been published this year. He has The Splendor in the Dark, C.S. Lewis's, um, I'm, I'm not sure if I pronounced this right, Dimer and His Life and Work. And uh, Splendor, and oh, I apologize, and the neglected C.S. Lewis, exploring the, the riches and most overlooked books. And, um, and I am just, again, I, I found uh, Jerry on uh, YouTube. Um, I saw him lecture, se uh, several of his lectures um, on C.S. Lewis, and I was incredibly impressed with his spirit, um, with his knowledge, um, and the... the um, sincerity that he brings to this work. I, I know that he um, he loves the works of C.S. Lewis, but he's also passionate about Jesus and about the um, and and about what C.S. Lewis is pointing to. So I'd like to welcome Professor Jerry Root to And If Love Remains. Thank you, Mike. It's great great to be with you, and I'm grateful to you for reaching out and inviting me to your program. Oh, it's it's an absolute pleasure to me, and and I'm thrilled. Um, I wanted to. to Start out and, and ask you um, just a just a little bit about yourself and and your interest in C.S. Lewis. How um, how did you? Um, we, I, we all have our own little, I guess, origin story. I shared mine with you a little bit, <laughs> um, but our origin story story into C.S. Lewis. How did you find him and and um, and how did that become one of your great passions? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles in. I was not in any way academically inclined, but you have to, and I wasn't a Christian, far from it. But I, you have to take it by faith now, but I was an athlete back then. So I went to college to play sports, and I had an older brother who was a Christian, and he invited me to a Christian college group. I heard the gospel for the first time, and I was overwhelmed that the God of the universe loved me, that he forgave me. I knew I needed to be forgiven. I didn't know I could be. And that he was willing to enter into my life as Lord and start the work of bringing order out of the chaos of my life. I was so deeply moved by this. I had made it my goal when I was in college to share Christ with every guy on the football team every year I was at school. We saw about 15 guys a year come to faith. But my buddies were asking questions, and I had no clue what the answers to those questions were. But I thought they were good questions, so I went and dug for answers, and I kept seeing the name Lewis show up. So that was intriguing to me. But my older sister was a Christian, and she was teaching fifth grade. And she, when I was having dinner with her one night, told me the plot of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I go, come on, there's books like this? So I read through the Narnian Chronicles and was intrigued, found out Lewis had an autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he talks in there about how he was haunted by these longings and the quest to find the object of his deep heart's longings. I knew the longings existentially. I never had anybody give me a vocabulary for my heart like Lewis did. Now, Lewis opens more than wardrobe doors, so I don't just read Lewis. I read the books he refers to, and I find all kinds of people talking about these longings. So it was that book, Surprised by Joy, that set me on my quest, and I started reading everything I could by Lewis. When I graduated from college, a man wisely said to me, you do not get an education in college. You lay a foundation for an education. And commencement, what we call the graduation exercises in our colleges, means you will now commence your education by building on that foundation. And he said, pick an author who will take you places and make him your life study. 
I, I think you could pick up artist, a composer, a period of history, a country, anything that's going to keep you um, um, interested in, in stretching and growing. And, and I think if you're growing in one area, it's going to start to branch out to other areas as well. And your lifelong love of learning and your sense of wonder and awe will follow you all your days. So I picked Lewis. And then I go to seminary. And I have to write a thesis. Well, remember, I was a, an athlete. I wasn't used to writing long papers. And there was no way I was going to write a, a paper on the use of the optative mood in the Greek text of Philemon. It just wasn't going to hold me. But I asked if I could write on C.S. Lewis, and they said, yeah. So that was the first time I really put pen to paper. And then pretty soon after that, I was writing a lot about Lewis, contributing articles and different things. And then um, I went on and got my doctorate, and I did it on Lewis. And I and, and and so consequently, then I started publishing. And before I knew it, people wanted me to come talk about him. And I was in, you know, I don't know, I was kind of taken back by it because I, I would have never thought that something that was so interesting to me personally would end up having interest to others as well. And if nobody was interested, I'd still be all in. But my pilgrimage has kind of gone that way. And I've now I've lectured on him in 78 universities in 18 different countries. I just sort of sit back and laugh about it. I don't take myself very seriously, but I take the things I do for Christ and his kingdom, I take those very seriously. So that's kind of my pilgrimage, if that makes sense. That's a beautiful story. And and that has taken you, I mean, to where you are today. You're right now, you're at Wheaton College. You're um, at the the Billy Graham Center there, my understanding is, and uh, you're um, your professor mentoring other young, um, other young people. Um, how, how is that going? And, and just, uh, I'm just curious now, how is that going with the, with school and, and everything that, that all the changes have been going on? Or, um, I hope you're still able to impact people's lives in that way. Well, one of the great things about working with college students is you're meeting with people who are on the thrust of their adult life. I mean, on the threshold of their adult life. And it's a blast to see young men and women fall deeply in love with Jesus, young men and women who are discovering the unique ways God wired them, and then moving out so that they could uh, express God's purposes through the ways that he has wired them and created them. And to be able to encourage that, to be a cheerleader in the stands uh, of these students while they're beginning their lives and th- these important thresholds, and they're also on the threshold of, of uh you know, maybe getting married, starting their careers. I'm I'm also ordained. So I've done over 900 weddings over the years, working with students who, you know, at that stage in their life, they're about ready to get married. And it's just a blast. I I feel like I have had a a great and fun life um, Uh, investing in other people. That's fabulous. I want to talk a little bit and ask you a little bit about um, I know it's not completely unique to C.S. Lewis, but it is one of his themes that I think um, you find in, in a lot of his books, and that is that longing. That's that 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 idea. And, and as a um, as a musician myself, um, I can relate a little bit to the idea of um, you know what's the the greatest compliment that that somebody can give a piece of art or or a or a um, or a music. Um, performance is is that of a uh, the feeling of a broken heart, the feeling of of oh, I wanted to keep going, but it's never quite satisfying. It's pointing to something else, and and I think I talk about that a little bit. How did C.S. Lewis express that in his works? Well, if God made us for Himself, then Augustine was right. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in Him. But it also means that if God made us complex, there's probably a lot of places where this longing is firing, not just one. And it's interesting, when Lewis became a Christian, within a year of his conversion, he wrote his first explicitly Christian book. It's the only allegory he wrote. The Narnian books aren't allegories. But it's called, um, maybe before I even say what it's called, Lewis said in one of his books called The Arthurian Torso that the first problem in life is how do we fit? stone and the shell and that the image is taken from Wordsworth's The Prelude where there's a Bedouin shepherd walking along with a stone and a shell. The stone represents reason and the shell represents the romantic longings of the heart 
And, and how do you fit these together? And Lewis recognized that as fallen people, we're broken. Sin is man playing God of his own life, so that estranges us from God. But if I'm playing God of my life, it estranges me from others, too. It's sort of anarchistic. Anarchists make bad community people. So consequently, there's a problem there. So what ends up happening is Lewis then is saying Christianity should be the thing that unites us. So the title of this first book he wrote, it's called The Pilgrim's Regress, an Allegorical Apology for Christianity, Reason, and Romanticism. So he believes Christianity can bring a thing together. The gospel reconciles us to God, to one another, even to ourselves. Lewis says, in, if, you, if you take several places where he gives comments like this, he, he says, I want God, not my idea of God. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. I want myself, not my idea of myself. So there's something reconciling and holistic about this approach to Christ. So in this allegory, Lewis has a pilgrim. His, his name is John. He sees a vision of an island off in a distance and it awakens in him a longing to want to go to that place. And he sets off in pilgrimage and he has all kinds of adventures. He makes a lot of mistakes and he has lots of ups and downs. But eventually he comes in this allegory to a hermit who represents history. And John asks history about the longings. And history says, well, there's three dominant longings. Well, if there's three, there could be 303. You know how that goes. But Lewis takes these three that are pretty strong in us. And this would relate, of course, to your being a musician because you write about these kinds of longings. The first one is, is the longing of the pilgrim, the longing of place. And, and the hermit situates it in classical literature. So what do we find in classical literature? You've got um, Ulysses in the Odyssey by Homer. What's the deal with him? He's been fighting in the Trojan Wars. He just wants to go home to Penelope. It's the longing for home. You get it in the Aeneid by Virgil, where Aeneas was a Trojan and his city now is destroyed. He flees from that city and he goes to the city that he's going to build, Rome, and he's caught between the longings of the two cities, the city of his birth and the city that will one day be. Augustine was not a lover of the great myths, but he loved that one because he thought it was indicative of our experience. And the book of Hebrews writes about it too, the pilgrim longing. Abraham went out from Ur of the Chaldees because he was longing for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You get it in the nostalgic longing. As you get older, you know, you want to go back to the old neighborhood and see how things were. And you go back to the old buildings that were uh, familiar landmarks. They've been knocked down. New buildings are put in their place. The vacant lots where you used to play with your friends. They've got buildings built on them. You go back, it's not the same. And, and you go back to your school reunions even, and, and they give you a name tag with your yearbook picture on it because nobody looks the same. I mean, all my friends, they're all bald and have gray beards. They're overweight and stuff. I, life's been hard on them. I'm fine, but life's been hard on them. And the, the nostalgic longing to want to go back, but where is it? When we go back, it's not that place. It's a longing for heaven, ultimately. And Lewis writes about this. The second longing is the longing that's awakened by relationship. And here, Lewis in that book has the hermit tell John that it was particularly developed in the Middle Ages. And what he has in mind is Dante. So if you read Dante, before you read the Divine Comedy, you need to read the Vita Nuova, New Life. And Dante writes about meeting on the streets of Florence this girl named Beatrice Portinari. And she awakens in him longing, but is it for Beatrice? So he writes about it and he's trying to figure it out in the Vita Nuova. But when he gets to the Divine Comedy, Virgil has... Uh, excuse me, Dante has Virgil, remember the guy who wrote about the longing for place, right. Virgil, poet, leads Dante through the inferno, halfway through the purgatorio, and Beatrice, who's died, comes out of heaven, collects him, and she guides him to the very threshold of the vision of God in the Paradiso. And then Dante writes, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. And what Dante's saying is these Love relationships that awaken in us and kindle us in us something deep. They're ultimately God wooing us through those relationships to himself. Interestingly enough, when C.S. Lewis, his, his wife died, Joy died, he wrote a book called The Grief Observed, where he's working through his grief. You know what the last lines of that book are? It's a quote. 
in Italian from Dante. She turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. Lewis gets it, these relational longings. And you can pick it up in all kinds of books, all kinds of romantic poetry, all kinds of music, the relational right. longings. Even in like, uh, you see, you see that again, just finishing the space trilogy, you see that with Jane and how her relationship with the director and, and her relationship, um, how that morphs into her relationship with her husband and her relationship with God, how that all becomes her overall looking towards God, whether the, it's, it's through the lens of the director or, or how that might be. Well, these, these, I think you're right, Mike. These themes reverberate throughout Lewis. And even the longing for place, you get that in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. You also get it in, in, in the longing to want th- things uh, that you are familiar with to be fixed. So the third big longing is uh, the longing that Lewis says is awakened by the romantic poets when they write about nature. And he picks up particularly on Wordsworth's prelude. Wordsworth, as he got older, recognized that he was getting more jaded that he had lost the lost innocence of youth, that he longed to have what was broken and infixed. And anybody who's lived a moment of honest life knows that there are things that are not right within. And we long to have it fixed. And so this longing to, to experience restoration, this longing to get back to that which is pure and unspoiled, that also is a kind of heaven longing. But I think we can see it in other things too. When 9-11 hit, um, I, I can remember thinking to myself, wow, how can we be safe? You know, uh, Todd Beamer, the guy that was on Flight 93, who said, let's roll. He used to come to my house for Bible study. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow, he just picked up his head from his pillow that day to go do some business. He was going to fly back home. And and, and how, he was just living his normal life. How can we be safe? Well, why would we expect that this would be a place of utter safety? We all know people who have lifted their head from their pillow in the morning and never rested it on that pillow at night. And death comes to everybody. Why do we think this is the place of safety? But the longing for safety is a longing for the place where things will ultimately be safe. I think it's a heaven longing. And then the longing to make sense. I remember catching myself on 9-11. What will this day come to mean to us? In some senses, we're still trying to figure that out. But why do we want to make sense? If the universe is a crock, and if it's meaningless, and if it happened just by chance, so therefore, inferentially, we could say if it happened by chance, it could have no direction. If it has no direction, it has no ends or goals in sight. And if it has no ends or goals, it has no purpose. But as soon as we start questing for making sense of our experience, we're exhibiting that kind of thing that, again, Augustine says, our hearts are restless, O God until they find their rest in thee. You have put in us a longing for making sense of things because ultimately things will make sense. And again, these themes reverberate throughout Lewis, but they should reverberate, they reverberate throughout all kinds of authors. Oh yeah. I, and, and I think that, I think um, I can really feel that today um, as I see, you know, for example, you know, right. And, and for those who might be listening in a future day, we're recording this, um, in 2020, and it's quite a exciting time. We have a pandemic going on. We have riots in the streets. We have protesters for on all sorts of different um, uh, important political issues. And and I think one of the things that um, maybe maybe one of the curses of that longing is is a misplacement of that longing. And 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 meaning to to me, you know a. a a want, a desire for utopia, a place, a, a desire to make earth heaven, a place, uh, uh, you know, how can we perfect the human, you know? Um, and by, and by doing that, you know, and do it, doing it through uh, dictate or through um, fiat. <laughs> um, and, and I'm wondering if, 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 if you see that kind of a pattern happening as well. Well, it's natural that it would. Um, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a longing or a desire that nothing on this earth can satisfy, that doesn't mean that world is a crock. It means that the world was made to awaken the desire, but not to satisfy it, but instead to goad me or nurture me or push me towards a thing that could desire. And Lewis talks about, um, you, you mentioned the science fiction books in Paralandre, he, calls, he talks about false infinites. The things that we tether our hearts to that we think will ultimately satisfy us, but they're destined to disappoint. In other books, he talks about the dialectic of desire. So I go through life and I I tether my heart to something that I think is going to satisfy me. 
uh, maybe a relationship. If I expect my wife Claudia to do for me what only God can do for me, I will begin to project on her my disappointments. If I expect my career to do for me what only God can do for me, I will project my disappointments. Lewis writes about the fact that we have first and second things. You put first things first, put God first, you can enjoy second things for what they are. But if you try to put second things first, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to lose out on both first and second things. Well, this reverberates throughout scripture too. Psalm 16, that will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So we confuse the right-handed pleasures for the primary pleasure, which is God. James 1.17, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and whom there is no variation or shadow. God is immutable and unchanging, but the gifts he gives to wooest himself can't satisfy, and they are by their very nature mutable. And consequently, we get it too in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, uh, seek the kingdom of God first. Because these other things, if you seek them in his place, they're the things that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. They will not fulfill you. Enjoy them for what they can do, but don't expect from them what they can't. Turn your heart towards God. I think that that's marvelous stuff. And the other thing, too, take everything else from me. Take everything else from me. I'll be disappointed, of course, because I've enjoyed those things. But I will not be devastated because I will still have God, who alone ultimately can fulfill. And you know, this, I, these these themes reverberate throughout Lewis's writing. Oh, that is, that, that's really that's really quite um, powerful. I, I um, just yesterday I was talking to my son, and uh, he was uh, mentioning to me. He he asked me a question. He said, "You know, if a um, if a tyrannic tyrannical government." comes and 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 asks for your stuff doctrinally what are you supposed to do and you know of course my first reaction is you know well you fight for it you you know you you, you protect it and um and before i could even answer because he, he was very happy with what he, what he discovered i guess is he said well doctrinally you should have you should be willing to um if if uh if if you're asked to give a mile you know go to so if somebody asks for your your car, put in put in the bike too. And in other words, you know the 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 doctrine is is not to find solace in stuff, not to find solace in this world, but to but to look beyond that. Well, we have to go a step further too, because you said your son came and says if the government comes, a tyrannical government comes and asks for your stuff. If I'm making the judgment, it's a tyrannical government. Am I making an accurate objective judgment? It truly is tyrannical. Or am I making the judgment that it's tyrannical because it doesn't agree with me? (laughs) I've become self-referential and therefore that which is tyrannical is that which doesn't agree with me and that which is right is that which does agree with me. So if there are people I disagree with, I can be tyrannical towards them. Now there's the question. (laughs) There's the rub, right? (laughs) Well, Lewis is good about this stuff because he enters into what he calls the dialectic. Even when he talks about friends, he says the first friend is a friend you make who reads everything you've read and agrees with you. So that means you're not stupid. Other people see it the way you see it. But we need second friends, too. And he says the second friend is a person who reads all the same things you read but doesn't agree with you. So we engage dialogically, and the bandwidth of our understanding is increased. But if I have to only be with people who agree with me, and therefore shut out all the people who don't as being somehow dispossessed or evil or, or stupid or something like that. I have entered into them something that's even more tyrannical, but it's something of my own making. Oh, yes. Wow. And that is, um, you know, and, and I think that is very pertinent in today's society as we get into our own echo chambers and, and we, you know, we love to listen to ourselves, whether that's actually ourselves or, or, or those first friends that tell us, you know, what we're well, saying. What level really- of insecurity does it reflect in my life if I meet somebody who's different from me and I have to immediately be dismissive? Why can't I say to the person who sees it differently, wow, tell me about that. I, I, I know that I, I am very finite. I'm fallen. My perspective isn't always right. Maybe it's right here. Maybe it's not. But you seem to bring something different to the table. Tell me about that. In his uh, 
literary critical work and experiment and criticism in the epilogue, C.S. Lewis says, my own eyes are not enough for me. I would see what others have seen. I would read what they've read, what, the, what they've written. Even that's not enough. I would read what they've imagined. I would read their fiction. Even that's not enough for me. I regret that the brutes cannot write books. Gladly would I see how the world presents itself to the eye of a mouse or a bee or how it comes charged to the olfactory sense of a dog. And also in that epilogue, he says, in coming to understand anything, we must reject the facts as they are for us in favor of the facts as they are. The facts are more complex than, than what I understand. And even if I have a, a, a sure word, I understand truth. I hold that understanding with confidence. I know it's true, but also with the humility of knowing that I can still go deeper with that truth. Every truth I know, I can go deeper. I can apply it wider to questions I haven't even begun to ask. So consequently, I hold it with humility, with a willingness to listen, and with a willingness to engage. I don't have to uh, you know, be a wallflower. I can engage, but I need to engage with the openness of knowing that while I may know some things, there's certainly a lot I don't know. And consequently, I start to listen. I start to grow, maybe because I've been courteous towards a person who disagrees with me. Maybe I gain a hearing from them and I can convince them of some things as well. But it leads me to community. It's interesting that the word community and the word communication come from the same root. That is interesting. out those who disagree with me, um, I, 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 am, I am losing. Well, and, 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 CS, and Lewis really does t uh, walk the walk there in, in, liter in a literary fashion, you know, and, and again, I'm, I just, you know, it's front of mind. So I'm thinking about the, um, that hideous strength and, and the community at St. Anne's and, and how, um, and, and I think you mentioned this actually, in, if I remember right in your lecture, um, how, how, um, diverse it really is. I mean, he, there's a skeptic there. There's a bear. I mean, you have this diverse group of, of, of people at different walks of, of life and different walks in their spiritual path um, and versus the, the NICE, which is very, um, you know, they talk about family, but it's, it's only family in the sense of you're going to look and act and, and think like us. Yeah. The, the, the group at, St. Anne's uh, centered around Ransom, who, by the way, was a character modeled after Lewis's good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. Ransom in the books is a philologist, as, as Tolkien was. Um, and also, uh, Ransom's name, first name is Elwyn Ransom, and Elwyn means friend of the elves. So Lewis gave him that name on purpose. But, but that group at St. Anne's is inclusive. Like you say, it's gender inclusive, men and women. It's, it's uh, educationally inclusive. It has those who are highly educated and those who are less educated but have good common sense. It has people of means and has people who are poor. It has humans. It has animals. Like you said, it has a skeptic, McPhee. And, and, and it's inclusive. And Lewis wrote an essay called Membership. And he says this is what the church should be. The doors should be open. We should have a breadth and so on, an appreciation of one another. But he wrote another essay called The Inner Ring in the NICE, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, who do experiments on animals. Lewis was a great lover of animals. All his evil characters are cruel to animals. From cruelty to animals, they become cruel to humans. And, and so the, the NICE is the inner ring. You have to fight to get in it, and you make all kinds of sacrifices, usually moral sacrifices, make to get inside the inner ring and once you get there you find out it's vacuous there's nothing there there's no substance there's no spiritual vitality it's very interesting yeah no it, it is it's very it is very interesting and and um I, now i'm curious i have um um i mean my my personal favorite book is is um the the great divorce um uh, just because of um you know, it's the one that really hit me the first. Um, and I just love little, little vignettes and, and how it's, it's built out. And I also thought it was such an ingenious, um, idea of, um, the idea that not even, um, or, or how do I say this? Um, a decision made that may be good, but not the best can ultimately lead to, um, disastrous results. And in other words, it's going to lead you further away 
from God. Um, and that's why it's called the great divorce. Um, but I, I'm curious to do what, what books, um, really speak to you or spoke to you, or, or is there one particularly that, um, that right now is speaking to you that Lewis wrote? Well, it's interesting when people say to me, what's your favorite Lewis book? I always say whichever one I'm reading at that moment. <laughs> right. So, but right, right now I'm rereading Experiment and Criticism. But it's funny you mentioned The Great Divorce. Last week I did a podcast for um, the Atlanta C.S. Lewis Institute on The Great Divorce. And so I was pretty much re- revisiting that book. I mean, I've read all these books many, many, many times. Right. So anyway, The Great Divorce, um, the interesting thing about it, Lewis is responding to a poem written by William Blake, who wrote of the marriage of heaven and hell. And he said, Blake wrote of the marriage of heaven and hell. I have written of their divorce. And and the big things um, about, about it is every person that comes up from hell who's given this chance to go into heaven has to let go of something they're holding on to in God's place. And none of them will do it except one, the guy who had the red lizard on his shoulder. Right. And the red lizard was, was lust. And, and it's interesting that, that the burning angel ends up killing the lizard, um, yeah. but gives back the lizard as a stallion now, stronger than the lizard ever was. But instead of the lizard riding the man, now the man who's restored and real ends up riding the horse into heaven. Lewis is really wise. Lust, lust is not, um, uh, it's not sexual passion or sexual desire. Sexual desire isn't lust any more than hunger is gluttony. And I think that's a fair analogy, not a false analogy. Lust is predatory. Lust is trying to make something happen. Lust denies the humanity of another person in order to use that person. And in the process, the person lusting, their own humanity is diminished. By the way, it says of lust in Scripture that Jesus lusted. In Luke's Gospel, it says, I desire to eat this Passover with you. The Greek word he uses there is epithumia, lust. And he sends his disciples to make it happen. Paul uses the word too when he says in Philippians 1, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I desire to depart and be with Christ. The word he uses is epithumia, lust. And so therefore he's doing something to make sure he finishes well. So lust then says, I'm going to set feet to make this happen. And and with, with, the, with the guy with the red lizard, the lust is consuming him but the lust is not sexual desire. The lust is a perversion of sexual desire. And, and I, I remember once having a student, he came to me and he was just all beat up, you know, and I said, what, what's up? And he said, I got to talk to you. I'm seeing a psychiatrist, I'm an antidepressant, I'm seeing a psychologist. I want to talk to you. I said, well, sit down. What is it? He says, it's lust. It's consuming me. I'm being destroyed by it. And I knew this student pretty well, and he didn't seem to me to have a predatory nature at all. But I thought, well, maybe he's hiding something from me. Maybe I don't know. What he described for me was normative sexual desire for a horny 20-year-old college guy. I said, that's not sexual. De- that's not lust, what you described for me. It's sexual desire. And again, sexual desire isn't lust any more than hunger is gluttony. Where did you get the idea that to be normal was bad? And he had mm-hmm. picked it up from a well-meaning but uh, 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 misinformed preacher we took the passage in the in the Sermon on the Mount and said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, it's as if you've committed adultery with her. And 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 the pastor had basically made it seem like if you look at a woman to notice that she's sexually attractive, well, that's not lust. That's no yeah. more that's no more inappropriate than noticing a person has a red coat on or a person is is uh, is bald or a person has a beard or something like that. You're just noticing. You're noticing reality. You're not trying to possess it. It's when you move towards possession that it becomes inappropriate. And so I talked to this guy and I said, what you need to learn to do is take the sexual desire as a gift. And I said, by the way, are you a sexual person? He didn't even know how to handle that. And I said, you either are or you aren't. It's like you have blue eyes or brown eyes. Finally, he says, yeah. And I said, it's kind of cool, isn't it? Have you ever thanked God for it? He never considered thanking God for making him a sexual person. I said, you're never going to get to second base if you don't at least get to first base. Thank God for the gift he's given you. And now let's talk about virtue. 
Let's talk about courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom, and those characteristics that will give you an ability to put a bit and bridle in this desire so that you're riding it and it's not riding you. Yeah. Lewis says the worst sins are not the sins of the body. Matter of fact, the greatest sinner didn't even have a body. Satan is a spirit. So consequently, the sins of the body, though, the sins of the flesh can become spiritual because they can lead me to doing inappropriate things. It can lead me to envy. They can lead me to petty jealousies and all this other stuff. I don't want to say because the sins of the flesh are not as bad as the sins of the spirit, pride, jealousy, all that stuff, that they're not thresholds and gateways to something far, far worse. I need to I need to nip it in the bud before it grows out of control. But nevertheless, Lewis is so good at defining things that he helps us get our minds accurately around these things rather than, than inflating things that are not so or, or coming up with uh, configurements that are going to cause people confusion and in the midst of their ambiguity lead to anxiety where it need not be. Clarity of thought is important and Lewis is oh, so good at it. That is powerful. And I think that is one of Lewis's just... I mean, if if you're going to describe Lewis as a writer or as a thinker, I think it is clarity of thought. Like he has refined his prose um, where it's it's clear, and and I and I love how um, uh, you know even in, in the vignette that you're you're discussing with the with the red dragon, um, you know uh, the the idea of 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 the the angel, um, you know, asking permission to kill it you know, do you, do you, can I kill it? And, and, and that whole, um, uh, internal battle that, that, that the, that the, um, devil goes through or the, uh, the person from hell goes through in order to, to make that decision, um, that, that, you know, whether it's lust or, or other sins that we all have to, um, struggle with that, we, that we all have to, you know, carry our cross with and make those decisions. Are we going to, um, kill our sins, in order to um, look for a better day, to, in order to, 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 again, you, you said it best, you know, in order for those things to climb us up the mountain. Say that last bit, I didn't, I didn't hear it. Uh, in, in other words, using, you know, in order, giving up our sins to Christ so that, so that he can transform them um, and, and make them, it's almost through those things that, that we're able to climb the mountain. Well, when we fell, we were made in the image of God, and the image of God was horribly broken. And the whole redemptive history is to restore the image of Christ in us. And that evil for the Christian is not an opposite to good. Evil is a perversion of good. You can't think of a bad banana without thinking of a good banana that goes bad. And, and evil compares to good, I would suggest, like bread mold compares to bread. But even man made in the image of a creator can take bread mold and make something healing out of it, like penicillin. So too, in this fallen world, God could take the evil of this world and make something like penicillin at Calvary, at the cross, where he turns evil on its head. But evil is a perversion of good. So what is the good that's being perverted here? And what does it look like when the good is restored? And I think that that's really important. So some people, again, if we get back to the sexual side of things, some people mm -hmm. want to throw out sex rather than say, how is sex being perverted here? And how might it be restored? What would be a healthy way of looking at this? Um, ownership is not a bad thing, but to steal and make somebody else's thing mine, that is a bad thing. How can I look at ownership so that I learn the art of being a good steward of my things? How I learn the art of being magnanimous so that I can use my things to encourage other people by, by being giving and so on. These are the things that, things that are also very important and I think come out pretty strong in Lewis's writings. Yeah, I, that's, and, 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 and I think because it's so ingrained in our, in us as humans, I think the, the sexual component is, um, something that's very um, vital is, or it's something that, that's just, just right there in front of us. It's always in front of us. Um, and, and you see that and you see the, the proper um, use of it again. And it, um, uh, it's, it's almost humorous at the end of uh, uh, that, uh, um, that hideous strength, how, you know, 
all of a sudden it's like springtime again <laughs> with all the animals and, and everybody, um, you know, the, the, the spirit of Venus is, a, is upon St. Anne's in a real way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, even the animals were included. Right. It's wonderful. It is. It really is. All, all of nature is restored. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, that's Romans 8 too. All creation groans longing for its restoration. This gets us back to the longings we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. And, and that, and what, what greater longing is there than to um, be creative with God, you know, in creating another life and in, and in bringing another person into the world and to Christ. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't think of a greater longing um, that one could have. I mean, it's good. It's really good. Um, well, you can write about all these things in your music, see, and awaken desire in the hearts of others. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting, too. C.S. Lewis said, most of my books are evangelistic. Well, what did he mean by that? We can certainly see how when he wrote his Christian apologetic books, those would be evangelistic in the sense that he is trying to lay aside the objections people might have had to faith. But he, he wrote this in another place. What we, we don't need more books about Christianity by Christians. We need more books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. And all of a sudden, people start to see a bigger picture that in Christianity, all this world starts to make sense. Right. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. So consequently, Lewis recognizes every time he puts his pen to paper, if he's writing with a faith-integrated liberal arts approach to life, everything I see in my world is in some senses, even in its brokenness as well as its wholeness, is a call to worship. And if I'm unraveling my life's experience well and thinking about it well, it should take my breath away. It should awaken in me a sense of wonder. God is here. God tells Moses at the burning bush, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Technically, we could say since God is always present, we should be walking around barefooted all the time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I want to ask you, um, you, you, wrote just, you, you wrote this book about the, the lesser known works of C.S. Lewis. What are some of those works? And, and, and for somebody who maybe is, is familiar with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Space Trilogy, the, um, you know, some of the very common books out there, um, what are some of the less common works that, that you think are important and, and people should be aware of? I mean, um, what, what's something that, that you think would be maybe accessible for somebody that, maybe um, is, is delving a little bit deeper into Lewis. Well, by recent account, there's 73 titles over Lewis's name. And, and uh, he wrote 56 books in his lifetime. He wrote the rest after he died. No, what happened was people pulled together, Walter Hooper primarily, this wonderful C.S. Lewis scholar, he pulled together um, essays that Lewis wrote in different works and then put them under common cover according to similar themes they also uh he wrote letters to everybody who wrote to him he answered all of his mail and some people said you're wasting your time answering people's letters you could be writing more books his letters are so profound that people saved them so there's eight volumes of his correspondence that are out there so that stuff was put together after he died but nevertheless his best work nobody reads and it's his literary critical work. It's a work that he wrote professionally as a, a, as a fellow at Oxford University teaching in medieval and Renaissance literature and as a professor at Cambridge University in medieval and Renaissance literature. So his work on the discarded image, for example, it's, uh, these were 29 years worth of lectures he gave at Oxford and Cambridge. And it's on the medieval worldview. So if you pick up a medieval book and you read it and project on it 23 values, you'll miss the book. You need to get background on that. And The Discarded Image is a fabulous book. And it's also, uh, again, the, the, the threads that are laced through it are all deeply spiritual because that worldview had kind of as a background that God, God existed and God was at work in our world. 
they made their mistakes, but every age makes their mistakes. It's still good to see where they were where they were firing on all cylinders. And then um, another one is the Arthurian torso. People don't read this book. It's a book about uh, the Arthurian legends. His friend Charles Williams had written this Arthurian poetry, and and then Williams died. So Lewis is, is sort of a, an obligation, a debt to his friend, his dear friend who had passed away. He decided to do literary critical instruction about the Arthurian poetry that Williams had written. And it is laden with rich and deep uh, theology. And you read what Lewis says in some of his theological insights, it takes your breath away. Another one um, that I think is interesting is pretty early on in his career, he wrote The Personal Heresy. And it was a debate, a literary debate that Lewis had with E.M.W. Tilliard, who is a Master of Jesus College at Cambridge and in this literary debate, you can't find one ad hominem. You don't find informal fallacies. You just find a robust debate that produces light and not heat. Wow. We live in a day where we don't even know what light is, and all we do is produce heat in our arguments. Ain't that the it's truth? It's a model of a good, good dialectical engagement that leads to outcomes that are, are breathtaking. And I think it's a book people should read, but they don't. They don't even know it exists. And then The Allegory of Love was a book that uh, Lewis, it was published in 1936, and Lewis looks at the development of this love allegory in medieval literature, and it was basically uh, how love is expressed in the different uh, literary uh, works of that period, and how ultimately it builds up to the archetype or the zenith, which is a love that is manifest in Christian marriage. And he sees this particularly in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. This was the book that establishes Lewis's uh, reputation as a great literary critic of medieval literature. People don't read that book. It's fabulous. Not only that, I read, I, I've read Allegory of Love many times. But I not only read the Allegory of Love, I read the books that he refers to in that book. And they're, they're fabulous. He opens more than wardrobe doors. Another one is English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. Most people don't read it. They're intimidated by it. It's a 700-page book. To write this book, Lewis read every book written in English in the 16th century. Wow. He read every book translated into English. In the original, it was written, Italian, French, Latin, whatever, and in translation so that he could make a judgment about the translation that would be fair-minded because it was an informed judgment. It's, a, it's the century of the Reformation. He's the only guy I know that read thoroughly both sides of the Reformation. And his judgments because of it are more uh, moderated and, and, and they're better. We, we know little and we make major judgments. And yet so it's, it's right it's right there in C.S. Lewis's work. Like, like you could, like it's right there for us to have if we just open the book <laughs> and read it. Well, and, and the thing is, we don't read much and make big judgments. Mm. Lewis read well and made moderated judgments, and I think that's interesting. The other thing too is this book; it introduces you to authors you've never heard of before. Michael Drayton was one of, he's he's one of my favorites, but I never heard of him till I read Lewis's uh, English literature, excluding drama. English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. And then I went and read Drayton, and I, I just fell in love with Drayton. But but the other thing, too, is that Lewis has such humor. You're reading in English literature in the 16th century, and the next thing you know, you're belly laughing by the way he describes something. It's just fabulous stuff. Very entertaining. Oh, and that and, and again, that's that goes back to what you said about when when you dig deep, when you when you find something like Lewis that that really has. Um, you know, infinite depth. It, it, it branches out into all these other, as you say, authors and ideas and, and, and even histories that, that just provide such a richness to your world. Um, well, the other, the other thing too, Mike, is the neglected C.S. Lewis I did with Mark Neal, who's a young and up and coming C.S. Lewis scholar. And, okay. and we did another book together too, called the surprising imagination of C.S. Lewis. We saw that Lewis used the, the term imagination 31 different ways. You know, he's a guy who lives in the imaginative world. And so he's, again, as we had talked earlier, he defines things well so he could speak about them specifically and articulately. Well, anyway, uh, Mark and I wanted P. 
people to be introduced to these books. So maybe a person doesn't feel like they have the inclination or the capacity at present to read one of these neglected books. If they could at least read the chapter here, get introduced to it. And if they find one that they say, that's fascinating, they could go then dip into it. Oh, that'd be, that's fabulous. Exactly. Um, again, this is Mike Levitt. I'm, I'm speaking with Professor Jerry Root. Jerry, you are just such a wealth of, of knowledge and, and, and I just, I really appreciate your time. I, I want to ask you about one other thing before I let you go. Um, you are the, the, um, you're at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College and, and you have a, a or there is a program there called the, um, Our Gospel Story um, program. And I just, can you just go over that a little bit and, and the idea? And I know evangelism is, is a great passion of yours as well. And um, can you talk to that a little bit? Well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, but I have it as a high passion, as I think every Christian should. Um, when Jesus talks about the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. And that word will fall on, on hard ground, that word will fall on rocky soil, it springs up quick and dies out, or it falls in weedy soil and gets distracted by the cares of the day. But when it falls on the good soil, it produces fruit. Um, you can even see Jesus telling uh, the disciples in the analogy of, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. The fruit bearing isn't just the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit of reproducing the life of Christ in other people. And it seems to me every Christian should have this as a passion, and we'll do it differently based on the way God has hardwired us. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I have the gift of encouragement. Every Christian I meet, I want to encourage them to be fruitful in service of Christ. Every non-Christian I meet, I know that they will not be able to live life to the fullest until they encounter the God who loves them, who forgives them, and who's willing to enter into their life to bring order to their chaos. But if you have the gift of hospitality, you do your evangelism around the table. You do it in the context of your giftedness. If you have the gift of giving, you do it in the context of how you use your resources magnanimously to help other people. If you have the gift of service, you do your evangelism while you're out helping other people fix their cars, fix their plumbing or something like this. And I, I remember once talking to a pastor and he, he said to me, um, yeah, we like to encourage the people in our church with the gift of evangelism. To do it. And I said, I want to come speak to your church so I could tell the people who don't have the gift of giving at your church, they don't have to give anymore. <laughs> you know, all of us are to do all the things that all of the gifts call us to, but some people right. have a special aptitude to do it so naturally and freely. And I think we need to recognize that. Um, and, and, and at, at the Billy Graham Center, you can go to the Billy Graham, Graham Center website, Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College website, and you'll see a thing called Our Gospel Story. And these are resources you can download to help you be more equipped to share your faith. And they give you little examples. They 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 set up um, some some almost cases in point of what this might look like and how you might go. You could use it in Sunday school classes at churches to teach people in your church uh, more confidence in sharing their faith and so on. So we try to produce those kinds of resources. I've also got a book that I did. It's a it's a class I teach at Wheaton on evangelism, and the book is called uh, The Sacrament of Evangelism. And it's basically that course put out in book form so that it could help anybody. I, not everybody's going to be a Billy Graham. Praise God for Billy Graham's. And Luis Palau is one of my heroes. Praise God for Luis Palau. But most of us are not going to do big event proclamational evangelism. But all of us have neighbors. All of us have coworkers. All of us have relatives who don't yet know Christ, and we're in their world. How do we do this personally and interpersonally? In that book, The Sacrament of Evangelism, which we also produce as part of our work at the Graham Center, will, I think, encourage and help people to do this in a way that is not stressful. It's so natural. And, 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 and I just have fun doing it. I, I don't think a week goes by where I haven't shared my faith with at least one, if not multiple, numbers of people. And it's fun. That's sure fun. That, and, I, and, and, you know, I have... I had a, um, uh, I was, uh, somebody told me the other day, it was kind of making fun of me. Um, he called me the most hopeful nihilist of all time. <laughs> and, and, and I think the reason they were telling me that is because I was is expressing some thoughts on, um, you know, some of the things that are going on in the world. And, and my, my, my feeling was that, um, 
you know, there is no man-made solution that won't end in, um, in, in violence and, 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 you know, and, and I, I just don't see a a way out of, um, out of our problems through a man-made solution. And, and the only answer is forgiveness, love, and Jesus. And, um, and so I think that the work that, 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 um, all of us do in, in proclaiming the hope in Christ and, um, and a, a look towards, I mean, just, just knowing that the, the burden of sin can be lifted is, is an amazing gift that we can give. Well, that's true, Mike. And the other thing too, is we don't have to be afraid where we don't know how to do it very well. It seems to me, all of life reveals levels of our lack of skill. A toddler learning to walk falls down and gets bruised. A five-year-old taking the training wheels off the two-wheeler falls down and gets abrasions. Nobody's ever ready to get married if you waited till you were, you never would. And nobody's certainly ever ready to have children if you waited till you were the whole human race within this generation. We operate at levels of awkwardness. And if we're not awkward someplace in our life, we're probably not growing. So consequently, here's evangelism. It's a high call. It's God's great work in the world. There's only two things you're going to do that are going to last forever. Have children and lead people to Christ. So here's the deal. I go out and I share Christ and I screw up completely. What do I do? I go back to the person. And I say, you know, I was thinking about this. I was was a little bit overbearing. Or I, I overstated myself. Or I didn't get this right. Please forgive me. And I'm asking you to forgive me because I wouldn't want anything that I ever did to keep you from seeing how deeply you are loved by God. And you end up back into it again, but in a kinder, gentler way. The other thing is if somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, that doesn't end the discussion. You go dig for the answer. And after you've dug for a while, you find some good stuff. You probably will never get to the bottom of any of this stuff. But you can find some substantive, sure words. And you go back to the person, you know, you say, the other day you asked me this question. I really didn't know the answer, but you matter to me. And consequently, I wasn't going to leave a stone unturned till I found out something that I thought was substantive. So I could come back to you and give you what I know you were interested in, because certainly you asked about it. You must be interested in it. This is what I found. And the discussion reopens and, and I, I don't think we have to be afraid of these things. Every time I go out to share my faith, it's a growth opportunity. I can benefit from past times that could give me wisdom for the new time, but the new time is also a unique time. And so it's another growing experience for me as I enter into the great privilege of letting people know how much they're loved by God, how rich is the gospel of forgiveness. How great is the hope of eternal life, and how wonderful is it to have God be Lord ordering this the the disorder in my life? It's all good. It is good, Jerry. Um, thank you. I I am I I feel like um. Well, let me just finish by by saying um. Again, thank you. I I think I think we've I've been rich, and I and I know my listeners have, and and I and I think just as as Lewis is a is a bridge to the gospels, um, you know, you're a bridge to him and to the gospels, and and I just I thank you for your work. I thank you for the things that that you're doing, and I feel like I, I met a friend today, Jerry, and I, I appreciate your time with me. I can't wait to see you face to face. I don't take myself seriously. I take what I do very seriously. But I think in some senses, God must take great humor in us. Oh, I think he made us because he, he likes us and he enjoys us. I think that um, uh, even when we goof up, I, I can't help but think he doesn't chuckle and say, boy, I'm going to have to do a little more work on this one. And so he <laughs> takes the screwdriver and the hammer and the nail and the wrench and he starts working on us some more. But just we should be patient with others as we would want them to be patient with us. And we engage in this great, great work that God has called us to as we live our life in this time for his glory. Very good. Thank you, Professor Jerry Root. 
um, Wheaton College. You can look at look up his books on Amazon. Um, the the father of four children, fifteen grandchildren. Just you know, and and as you can hear, just a, a, an amazing man. I want to thank you again. My name is Mike Levitt. I'm with And If Love Remains. You can find information about us at www.andifloveremains.com. We do have uh, merchandise to sell to help support the show, um, but. Please. The most important thing is, is if you found this helpful, useful, inspiring, um, pass it on to your friends, neighbors, share it, um, like it, and uh, we'll catch you on catch you on the flip side. Catch you next time. Thank, oh, let's do this again. Can, would you Would you be willing to do this again with with us, Jerry? Anytime. I'm uh, happy to do it with you. You're, you're a fun guy to talk with. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a, It's been a lot of fun. See you next time.